Good morning. Just sung about a wedding, and we're going to go to a wedding in John chapter 2. If you are joining us for the first time, or if you're a guest or visitor, we're glad you're here for this very joyous occasion on which we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, if you've been with us, you know we're beginning a series in the book of John. Uh, We'll be in the second chapter today, so if you've got uh, your pew Bibles there, it's found on page 887. But as we've done earlier, I want you to uh, notice some of the themes that run through this book. So if if you're there at page 887, you can go ahead and turn to the back of the book to page 907. And as uh, we turn to page 907, it's just really great to see all of the way in which the threads connect in the book of John and beyond. So for instance, we just sang in Psalm 45 about how the king is full of grace uh, on his lips. And earlier in John chapter 1, we saw how Jesus is one who is full of grace and truth as he comes into the world. And uh, in John chapter uh, 20, verse 30, we see not only a purpose statement, but also a connection to what happens in chapter 2. So look at John 20, verses 30 and 31 again. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's giving us his purpose. He wants us to believe that Jesus is the Christ and believing to have life in his name and to do this, to accomplish this, what did he write down? Well, he took selected stories and the many signs that Jesus did. That's what it says there in verse 30. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of many people. And as we turn back to chapter two now, you're gonna see the first of Jesus' signs that he worked as he went to this wedding in Cana of Galilee. So the purpose, as we look at the book of John, is not simply so that you'd see things that are interesting or amazing, but they have a certain significance to them. And uh, John especially keys in on the significance of these events. His gospel is less sequential in certain cases, but more significant, as various commentators have said, uh, drawing out uh, what the meaning of these particular uh, acts of Jesus is. So we're going to go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll read the first 12 uh, verses of chapter 1. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that the lips of our Lord Jesus are full of grace full of truth, and we thank you that he's the bridegroom who speaks to us today. And so, Lord, we are glad to be here celebrating our great bridegroom, and we're thankful for the things that he did while here on earth, so that seeing we might believe, and that by believing we might have life in his name. So, Lord, would you cause us to be a little more alive today as a result of being in your presence and hearing your word, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is God's word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, 
and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Thus ends this reading of God's holy word, which we pray he would write on our hearts today and forever. It's wedding season. We are glad to have the newlyweds back with us. We're thankful to be praying for those who are looking forward to getting married later in the summer. And these are seasons of great joy. And there's usually a ceremony that's followed by a feast and you have food and drink and you often have dancing and uh, it becomes a real downer when you run out of food or drink. And being a pastor, sometimes I get a little bit of a glimpse of what's going on behind the scenes when the caterer begins to run out of food. And there is a sense of desperation that... uh, overtakes the people who are in the kitchen. And uh, I've even seen it happen where people say, quick, uh, call Walmart and see what they've got in the deli. And if that doesn't work, go to the Walmart that's farther up the road. And uh, normally, what is it that happens? Well, somebody finds a way to solve the problem in our culture, and everybody gets fed, and usually nobody really notices, and the people who are back in the kitchen go, Whew, we survived. And there's a sense in which uh, we go through life a little bit that way, right? We, we try to solve our problems and, and we maybe basically manage to get the problem solved and, and we, we all go away with a sense of relief. Well, in this particular wedding, we, we see that they run out of wine and there's a, a great problem that needs to be solved and there is the miracle that Jesus works here in this place. But as we look at this story, particularly in the place of John, And it applies to our lives here as well. What we need more than anything is not simply to have an adequate supply of food or of wine. The great thing that was to be seen on this occasion was not that there was simply food provided or drink provided for out of nothing. The purpose of this passage, the significance of it, is that we would see and be amazed at something far greater that we would see and be amazed by a person, even Jesus Christ. And so that's the end result of the story here that's very clearly seen in verse 11. First of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. He manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So we want to see that same thing happen in our midst today as we would contemplate this story, that we would be amazed at Jesus that our faith in him would be built and that we would walk away with a sense of holy awe as we contemplate his grace to us. It's a beautiful little story. So let's just begin to walk through it. You see the setting and the the problem that develops, first of all. And note the setting here. There's this wedding. 
It's on the third day of uh, be three days after the, the prior event where Jesus has just begun to call his disciples. So you remember that he had been uh, baptized by John down uh, in Judea, and now he has moved up into the region of Galilee. Uh, this is the third day, and I won't go into all of the details here, but if you put all of these events together, it appears that this is the seventh day of Jesus' first week of ministry. And uh, as you see, there's significance in that. Uh, God makes his first creation in six days and he rests on the seventh. And here Jesus comes into the world. He's making a new creation, even as he begins his ministry. What is it that he is going to do? What is it that he uh, provides for his people? And uh, so Jesus is at this wedding. We're told his mother was there and he is... uh, in tow along with his disciples. So clearly it's some of their friends. Uh, Cana was not that far from Nazareth. You can imagine that in one sense that the culture would be very different. Weddings are the same everywhere. They're sources of joy. They're times where family and friends and neighbors gather together. And uh, Jesus gives his blessing to uh, not only this wedding, but to all weddings, showing his, his great joy and delight that he takes in simply being at a wedding. Well, the, the story uh, continues here in verse 3. And uh, uh, let me just note before we move on to verse 3 that there is a significance of, of weddings in creation as well. As you read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, uh, what is it that God places there? He, he places in the Garden of Eden a wedding, Adam and Eve being joined together in that first creation. And when Jesus completes his new creation, as we move to uh, to Revelation chapters 21 and 22, what do we see there? We see the, the marriage supper of the lamb, Jesus with his bride being joined together. And to John, as he wrote these truths, he, he knew these great truths and he had heard Jesus by the time he wrote this, uh, refer to the way in which the kingdom of God is, is like a marriage feast as he uh, would have known was recounted and recorded in Matthew chapter uh, 22 and 25. Uh, so, so John is working even as he reflects back on this first sign of the significance of the creation, of the new creation, of the joy and delight of the wedding there in the Garden of Eden and what Jesus has promised he's going to do. And he's reflecting back now, remembering all of these things as he tells us the story of what Jesus did as his first sign uh, embedded within this overarching narrative of what the Lord Jesus is doing in all of history, even for us. So the problem then uh, begins to develop in verse 3. We're told that the wine ran out. And in this culture, that was a very great problem. There would be a ceremony, first of all, of going to the bride's home, and they would uh, take the bride, and then they would go back to the bridegroom's house, and then the celebration would go on, for which the bridegroom was responsible. And it might last seven days, a time of great celebration and joy. And it wasn't simply a social faux pas in their day if you ran out of wine or if you ran out of food. Uh, Scholars tell us that it was also possible that as the bridegroom, you could face charges for not having provided adequately for your people. So instead of people bringing you their gifts, you know, and dropping the cards in the the box or the basket and the bride and the groom being able to get back from their honeymoon and open uh, all of the, the, the cards with the cash and with the checks in it, what are they opening? They're opening lawsuits, right? Quite the opposite. This is a crisis that is unfolding before us. 
And you can imagine this poor couple. I mean, they don't get named for us. But when you bump into them one day in heaven, right, they're going to be telling you about the end of the story. But they might also reflect on the terror that filled uh, their own hearts, maybe even if they only found out about it later, but the terror filling their own hearts of the circumstances that they were in. It was a dramatic wedding. Jesus blessed it with his presence, but it was one of the worst weddings of the weekend, at least as far as we see when we get to verse 3. This is what Jesus does for his people, and this is what is significant of what's going on, is he, he comes to needy people. He comes to people whose supplies are running out. He's coming to people who uh, know that they have debts to pay. And so as the story unfolds, they not only have no wine, but uh, there's another little puzzle that begins to unfold for us here in verse four. Uh, The mother of Jesus comes to him and says, they have no wine. Scholars sometimes wonder, why did she come and ask this question or make this statement? Is it because she knew that he was a miracle worker and had the power to do this, even though he hadn't done it yet? And this, of course, would, uh, would speak uh, against the Roman Catholic idea that Jesus was doing uh, miracles when he was a little child uh, and, and some of these kinds of things. Uh, or that, that Mary uh, was interceding uh, in a special kind of way here. What seems to be more likely is that Mary knew from raising him that he was actually the perfect kid. Uh, he was without sin, and he was no doubt a resourceful young man as uh, one who was a son of a carpenter and a carpenter. Uh, it's possible that there was faith in her heart that she knew he could do more, But it may also be that she's simply looking to him to help uh, provide for uh, some sort of solution that uh, might be useful in this particular case. And Jesus responds to her and he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, this is not exactly a term of endearment. He's not being rude to his mother. The word might be something more like ma'am. What is it that's going on? Why does Jesus... Treat his mother this way. Well, it it seems clear that it's a little a hard verse to translate, but it seems clear in any event that Jesus is telling Mary what her place will be in his ministry as his ministry unfolds here in the first week. She doesn't have any special inside track to him. And more significantly, Jesus is going to be controlled through the course of his life by the will of his father in heaven. And that is emphasized by the statement that he makes next when he says, my hour has not yet come. He's getting ready to do the first of his signs. But this term hour will become even more important as we go through the book of John, as we go on the road to the cross. And we'll see in chapter 13 and chapter 17 that this hour of which he speaks is the hour of his atoning work at the cross. Because of course, what we need is not more wine. What we need is forgiveness of sins. We need our shame to be lifted, not simply from a failure to supply food in a a culture that would have known something of shame and honor. But what we need is to have our shame lifted and our sin taken away so that we might stand before a righteous God in the final wedding at the last great day. 
Well, Jesus responds to Mary and he informs her that she doesn't have this sort of inside track and that that he's not going to be controlled by her. And we need to remember the same thing, that Jesus is not a giant ATM for you. He's not the place where you come and you stick your prayer card in and you punch in your, your secret pin and you get the cash or the goods or the things that you need. Yes, Jesus wants to hear all of your prayers for even the smallest things, but with a right spirit and with a right heart. And you don't get special connections to Jesus just by knowing the right people or being in the right place. Uh, some of you know that I have uh, one, um, uh, two brother-in-laws that are also pastors. So sometimes when there are family funerals, uh, multiple ones of us start to be involved in the service and these kinds of things. And so this means that we're dealing with the funeral home directors and they get a little confused by a larger family, first of all, sometimes, but then they find out there are a bunch of pastors and sometimes other pastors that are also involved. And uh, recently, one of the funeral home directors looked at me when I explained the situation rather sheepishly. He said, wow, your family's not going to have any trouble getting in those pearly gates up there. funeral home need director needs to read John 2. He needs to read how Jesus treated his own mother. Woman, what does this have to do with me? None of us can manipulate Jesus. We are entirely reliant upon him and his grace. And it's beautiful to see the way Mary responded. She, she didn't take this as a, a rebuke and walk away and say, that son of mine. Now, what does she say in response to the waiters? Look at verse uh, five. It's a beautiful statement. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, certainly not the main point of the text, but if you walked away with nothing else, this would be a verse to walk away with in your heart. Do whatever he tells you. And again, this is somewhat significant at the outset of his ministry because he's going to be working among a bunch of scribes and Pharisees. He's going to use illustrations about wine and wineskins and and pointing out that the new can't be placed, the new wine can't be placed into the old wineskins or else they're going to burst. He's going to have people who are telling him he's upsetting the old legalistic order. He's going to have people trying to undercut him because he's here to emphasize fresh grace. And what we all need to do is to remember that we'll have many people telling us many things to do in life. We would do well to remember Mary's words here. Do whatever he tells you. And you're going to find what he tells you to do in his word. And he'll lead you by the power of his spirit. But it is Jesus alone that is going to deliver us from our difficulties. It is he alone who is going to deliver us from death, and it was he alone who was going to deliver them in this particular situation, which causes us to return again to the story in chapter 6. How does the story resolve itself? How, How does the solution come? Well, we're told that There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. So these would be large uh, ceramic stone pots that would have been used to wash people's hands and feet. They would have held 20 or 30 gallons, as we see here in the text. And Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. Now, 
He tells them to fill the jars with the water. The sense here is all the way to the top. And this was so that there wouldn't be any mistake. There wasn't any room for the, uh, uh, the uh, wine solvent to be added. Uh, there wasn't any room for uh, some sort of powder to be stirred in uh, in order to make something new. No, it's just water. That's all there is in these, gal- uh, in these jars. Uh, so here you have more than 100 gallons of uh, water that has been filled up. And we, of course, have the one who is full of grace and truth. There is goodness that's just overflowing out of Jesus. He comes to this uh, wedding and he is ready to provide out of the overflow of his fullness who he is for them as these jars are filled up and they're filled all the way to the brim, we're told in chapter 2, verse 7. And then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. They drew water out. They take it to the master of the feast and you see his response. He says, this is unbelievable. What's, what is wrong with you people? He wants to know. He says, you normally take the best and then after everyone has uh, lost their sense of taste to some extent, you serve them the, the weaker wine. But no, they've done the opposite in this case. What does it show us? Well, it shows us that Jesus always provides the very best. There is something better here than has come before. And it is found in Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is demonstrating here that there is something new on the scene. There is a fulfillment of the things that were promised in the Old Testament. When we see prophecies in the Old Testament about the fullness of the kingdom of God coming, it's often told in celebratory tones with a prophecies of new wine and food that are being provided for the people of God so that they might celebrate. He has provided not only for their ordinary need here, but what has Jesus done? He's taken water and he has made not a change of degree, but a change of kind. He's taken something and made it into something entirely new. That's the kind of thing that only a creator can do. And he's made it far better than it was before. So we see here that the messianic bridegroom has come, the one who is the fulfillment of all of the ages. And he comes to a simple wedding in a small town in Nazareth to show the people his power so that they might rejoice and so that they might have great joy. But again, it isn't simply that he provided materially. There there is an announcement that is being made here to Jesus' disciples that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has come. All things are made new. They're getting just a little glimpse of what it is that Jesus has arrived on the scene to do. And Leon Morris pushes this a little farther. He says, he changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity, the water of Christlessness into the wine of richness and the fullness of eternal life in Christ, the water of law into the wine of the gospel. He captures this sense that in Christ, everything is new and that the new is far superior to the old. And so what is the the response that is here for the people of God. Well, it's for the disciples in verse 11. We're told that in this act, Jesus manifested his glory. 
And in chapter 1, verse 14, we're told that the word had become flesh and dwelt among us. And John said, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. They're seeing just a little bit of his glory here. He's revealing it to his disciples in kind of a semi-public way here at the wedding. And what was the result? His disciples believed in him. His disciples believed in him. Not just that he had great power, but that he himself is amazing beyond measure. And so they go on and continue to follow him. What does this mean for you and for me? It means that our eyes ought to be lifted so that we would see Jesus. And we're called today to taste and to see that he is good. And you have your old life of sin. You have the the, the baggage of the self-effort, perhaps, that you've put forward to solve your own problems, to hide and to cover the shame in your life as this bride and groom would have loved to have been able to do. And you've tried that before and you found it's like trying to get dressed with fig leaves. It just doesn't ultimately work, maybe for the moment, but not for long. And the Jesus who comes onto the scene has the power and the desire to make all things new, to to cover the shame, to provide for his people in fullness. That's what he does, and that's why he is worthy of your faith and of your belief. And it is why you and I, as we come here today, ought to be filled with a sense of awe and of joy and of wonder as we contemplate who Jesus Christ is. And the intention for the guests there that day was that they would be filled with such joy and gladness. And if you see who Jesus is, if you taste and see, if you experience him by faith, you too will be filled with this same kind of gladness. And this is why uh, the Apostle John, as he uh, wrote in the, his vision of the Revelation, saw the end of these things at the, uh, near the end of his life. And I want to encourage you to turn to Revelation chapter 19 at this time. Page 1039 in the Pew Bibles. John had seen Jesus at the wedding in Cana. John had seen Jesus go to the cross. He'd seen him uh, be buried and then rise again on the third day. He'd seen him with his own eyes ascend into heaven. And he knew that even as he wrote, he was writing for people just like himself who were here on this earth, who were anticipating meeting Jesus in fullness. And so he writes uh, this vision that the Lord gave him in Revelation chapter 19 He says in verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult, and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. The marriage of the Lamb has come. We here today, we didn't get to be part of that wedding in Cana. We didn't get to see Jesus with our own eyes turn water into wine. You weren't invited. 
but you are invited today. You are invited to see this same Savior who turns water into wine, to see him by faith as he's seated on the throne, and to know that he is issuing an invitation to another wedding feast where all things will be made new, where sin is taken away and guilt is removed and he provides for his people out of the fullness of his own goodness. And you're invited. And what he calls you to do today, like the disciples of old, is to stand in awe and amazement and believe in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we come now to the Lord's Supper, even as we conclude this meditation on John chapter 2. And we thank you that you have provided for us a meal in an ongoing way so that we might partake by faith and so that we might believe and be filled with joy, awe, and admiration of our Savior, whom we worship today. We ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.